Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpe and Peter Torpe. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. This week we'll be talking about navigation by echolocation. This show first aired in 2014 and has been updated with some new contact and resource information. If you can't see with your eyes, you need other ways of recognizing your environment in order to maneuver through it. Like bats, humans can also use echolocation. We'll speak with Daniel Kish and Jay Steele Lockhart of World Access for the Blind about flash sonar, an echolocation technique they have developed and teach worldwide. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Daniel Kish. There's a little bit of the chicken and the egg scenario here because a lot of blind people will tell you that they have no interest in doing this long list of things, whatever it might be. And they say, well, that's just not the kind of person that I am. And one of the questions that our students have to seriously ask themselves is, do you not do that because you wouldn't want to if you were sighted? Or do you not do that because you're blind and you feel like that's not something you've learned to do? You feel like that's not something that is supported for blind people to be able to do. So you have no interest in doing it. And we find that our students do actually want to go out and learn these new things and try these new things. The ones who are hesitant at the beginning, even by the end of a workshop, they say, oh, you mean we can ride a bike through a parking lot? Let's try that. Let's do that. And this passion for life is completely invigorated by the flash sonar work and the other perceptual approaches that we apply. And that's an interesting point. Sometimes we place some artificial limitations that we don't even know about on ourselves just because we don't think we're interested in doing something, whereas if we had the ability to do it or the tools to do it or a way of doing it, we would enjoy doing that activity. So we should open up our minds a little bit, I guess, is what he's saying. And those limitations are in addition to all the times somebody else might have told you that you aren't able to do something just because you're blind. So it's nice to know that there's other ways of increasing the number of possibilities that you can engage in. And that's what this show is going to be all about, some other ways of opening up those opportunities. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by Ira, an app that remotely connects people who are blind or have low vision to trained agents for access to visual information. Details are available at 1-800-835-1934. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Let's start by meeting Daniel and Jay. I'm Daniel Kish. I am the president of World Access for the Blind, and I am a certified orientation and mobility specialist. I hold both comms and NOMC certifications. And I'm Jay Lashar. I am a mobility coach with World Access for the Blind. I am currently uncertified, but will be finishing my certification next year. And what is NOMC? NOMC stands for National Orientation and mobility certificates. So there are basically two certificates offered nationally. There's the COMS, which stands for Certified Orientation and Mobility Specialist, that is provided by one national organization. And there's the NOMC, which is provided by another national organization. Jay, you're also a full-time student? 
I am. I'm a full-time student and a part-time coach with World Access for the Blind. And what are you studying? Uh, Western Michigan University, actually, doing anthropology, English, and world languages. Well, that'll keep you busy. Yes, yes, it's a good life. And Daniel, do you have an additional job, or this is your whole full-time thing? Well, World Access for the Blind is more than a full-time thing. Um, I am, however, initially and originally trained as a psychologist. So I have two master's degrees, one in uh, developmental psychology and the other in special education. And then for my case, to go on after the anthropology bachelor's, I'll be getting two masters in orientation and mobility and in biocultural anthropology with an additional certificate in orientation and mobility so I'll have both the comms and the NOMC, and I'll be moving on to do my PhD in neuroanthropology. So, Jay, you are visually impaired, is that correct? I am. I'm totally blind. Have you been blind since birth? No, I actually went blind at 12. I had a tiny bit of vision then and became totally blind just over a year ago. So this has been a, an adjustment for you? It's been an adjustment Certainly, there's a transition. Any amount of vision that you have is sort of useful in some regard. And so I went from using flash sonar as an overlay, as a feedback system, which played in with my what I'll call ocular vision. And then being totally blind, I basically had to learn to continue compensating and, frankly, get better with the flash sonar as a sole tool. But you also use a cane with the flash sonar. Absolutely. Absolutely. We use a cane ourselves. We also only work with students when they will be using a cane. Um, that is actually one of the things that we look for in students when they're going through the application process. Some students will try and basically usurp the cane and say, oh, we'll just use this flash sonar thing to get around. You absolutely use them in tandem. It would be virtually impossible and extraordinarily dangerous to try and focus both on the ground looking down and on the things around you looking up at what we would call typically head level. Are you blind also, Daniel? I am. I'm blind as the result of retinoblastoma. So I lost my first eye at the age of seven months and the second at the age of 13 months. So I've effectively been blind from infancy. And how did you guys first meet up? Daniel had come to my hometown to do a conference at a local university. And I went to that speaking event and I sat in the front row and basically just threw questions at him until I absolutely couldn't. And afterward, we had a conversation, and basically it was keep in touch. Uh, we seemed to really agree on what the mobility field sort of was and sort of needed. And from there, we've basically spoken every day since. Eventually, toward the end of high school, I started doing an internship with them and then became a mobility coach after graduation. So Jay was 14 at that time, and he had only been blind or significantly visually impaired for two years. And what I remember was sitting in a room full of professionals. There were only a few people in the front row, and Jay was one of them. And I would pose questions to the audience, and I, you know, kind of expect a response. And then we sort of spin off in a little bit of discussion from that. And I'd pose questions to the professional audience. And as is typical, you have to massage the audience to get answers. So Jay was typically the person who would answer. So I would ask a question, there'd be a pause, and then there'd be this little voice coming from front and center, and it would give me the answer to the question effectively in my own words over and over and over again. And so I found out afterward that he had read and committed to memory 
everything that I had written and posted onto the net at that time. And so when it came to the presentation, uh, let's just say that he was well prepared. <laughs> Interesting. Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Underwriting pairs the impact of targeted marketing with the integrity of community goodwill. Learn more by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is world access for the blind and the navigation system using echolocation that they teach around the world. So can you tell us a little bit about your organization? World Access for the Blind began in 2001 as a nonprofit. And I, at that time, was, was the only instructor. Um, in fact, I was the only anything, uh, pretty much. There were other people who were involved, however. And so over time, we have trained other blind instructors, Jay being one of them. We have Juan Ruiz, who is Latino, he's from Mexico. And then we have Brian Bushway, who is currently in school earning his master's. And since this interview was recorded, they have also added Thomas Tahoe from India. And you do this all over the world, right? We've been to over 36 countries so far, and it's all by word of mouth. It's basically by invitation. We try not to commercially advertise ourselves because effectively we believe that our approach is so strong and so capable to affect change in the lives of our students. We don't need to put out these commercial advertisements because we want our students to tell other potential students, this is what I've learned, see it for yourself, please go ahead, take the workshop and believe it. So it's been word of mouth, it's been internet, it's been uh, media pieces, there hasn't been a promotional campaign, per se. And who typically might avail themselves of your services? I mean, I would guess individuals can't afford to haul you across the world to come to them. You know, it's all of the above. It's a big variety. Um, sometimes individuals do. Sometimes families will. What more often happens is, for example, the trip that is upcoming where I'll be traveling to Europe there are organizations who are bringing me there. Organizations often bring us there. And then we work with individuals or families while we are there. So the bulk of the uh, expenses, if you will, are covered by an organization or company or corporation or what have you. And then we're able to provide the services to individuals or families by virtue of already being there. And there is no fee or official charge to work with individuals. We do request generous contributions, but those contributions are voluntary, and they're voluntary really with respect to what people feel they receive from the service. And, and so some people contribute very, very amply, and some less so depending on their means. Now, when you guys come to town, can you give us an idea of specifically how it might go, what might happen, what you do? So if we're working with individuals, for instance, I work primarily with kids between 4 and 14 in the K-12 system, then I might come in after having first done an assessment uh, over the phone and through paperwork with the families, and I'll come in, I'll work with the student and the family for the first day just to see how they interact. What do they do? Why are they doing it that way? 
are they doing it because that's how they've always done it or are they doing it because every day they're just trying to carve a new path for themselves and find out a little bit more about their own experience and maybe they're doing it because they've been told to do that by their professionals and there's often a situation where the child isn't receiving services or isn't receiving adequate services which is why the family seeks this out in the first place and once I get this initial assessment in for how does the student function and sort of why do they function that way I'll start with flash sonar exercises with them which we call panel exercises and basically we'll show them with say a dinner plate and a pillow and say a credit card and a business card for instance we'll show them where is an object's presence where is its distance its location shape sizes edges texture and density so that'll take several hours at least to go through and show them just the absolute basics in this controlled situation of how do you tell where things are and effectively what they are. Then after that, you begin to move outside into the environment. You start showing them trees, building, cars, basically everything you can imagine. And what you want to do is to show them how to take those principles and you want to show them how those things make up vision. Besides this, ocular vision also deals with detail and color, light. Well, you can't get those through flash sonar, but you can get these other things. And these other things really do make up what objects look like. And then you build their sound catalog. Once they have this foundation in flash sonar, you begin to work with them on the cane and how to use their hands, how to understand the world around them in terms of spatial cognition, planning, pre-planning, all of these sorts of things. And what you get very quickly is an integrated model where they're doing all of these things at once in a very organized and systematic way so that it is practical experience and you're not trying to basically overload the brain with one thing after another after another. You do it calmly and together. So can you describe the flash sonar process and what it is a little bit more specifically? So scientifically, it's fairly straightforward. It's basic geometry and acoustical physics. You make a small tongue click with your mouth, like that if you could hear it, and what that does is it sends the signal out from your mouth, which is directly between your two ears, of course, goes out into the environment, hits objects, tries to go through them, tries to wrap around them, and flashes back to you, all at roughly the speed of sound, and the way that it tries to go through the object will tell you what density and what texture it is. The way that it tries to wrap around the object will tell you the size and shape and all these things, and how long it takes, how far away it is, that shows you distance and location. Then experientially, if I were going to be describing to a sighted person what it is that flash sonar looks like, I often like to use a tree. So if I'm walking across a park and I find a particularly large tree, the sound is going to go out, it's going to hit the trunk of the tree, it'll fall down the trunk, it will rise up the trunk, It'll go into the branches and slide along each branch, hit each leaf, and fall down. And so you get this cascading waterfall effect of tree, and it comes back to you in this slightly shaken form that shows you the bark, shows you the plumage, and you get this extremely, extremely accurate non-visual image, we say, of what it is that a tree does look like based upon its sound. Presumably you can tell the difference between, say, a pine tree, which has a very short exposed trunk, and a deciduous tree that has a very tall exposed trunk, but you couldn't begin to tell the difference between an oak and an elm. Well, you can quite clearly tell different trees from other trees. I wouldn't necessarily say by type, although I think that 
maybe if a person really set themselves to learn, maybe you could learn some things. But when we look at the trees, we tend to look at broader uh, strokes, such as are the branches high or low? Are there a lot of branches or relatively few? Are the branches heavily leaved or relatively open? Are the leaves broad or narrow? Um, Is the trunk relatively straight or curved? Are there multiple trunks? Is the trunk relatively smooth or highly textured? So those are the kinds of characteristics that you can determine. Is the trunk broad or narrow? Is the tree tall or or short? Does it have a broad canopy or a relatively confined canopy? And then using that information, and this is not particularly difficult, you can begin to recognize one tree from another. So this is the tree in front of my house, for example, or in front of my friend's house, because I just recognize it. It has a certain geometry. It has a certain set of characteristics that I recognize that distinguish it from other trees. Could you recognize a person? I say that flash sonar makes the world up of mannequins, and so you don't get a person's face, but you certainly get a structure to them, the shoulders, their waist. You know, If they have their arms out, you'll see a flash of that. You'll see sort of the roundness of where their head will be. All of these things, you get that through flash sonar, even if you don't get the very fine detail and the color. So as an analogy, this is how bats navigate by sending out their high-pitched squeals and then listening to the reflected sound. Well, it's more than an analogy. It's exactly how bats navigate. The only differences have to do with the fact that they have about 50 million years on us in terms of evolution in this particular capacity. And they use ultrasonics which we don't uh, typically, and their ears are movable and much, much larger than ours. But aside from those key aspects, the, the process is virtually identical. So without all those millions of years of evolution, how do you think some people are able to pick up this technique and be so good at it? The other aspect that we'll throw in in terms of perception is that the brain scan research has shown that those who use flash sonar as a principal means of navigation, at least those thus far studied, implicate the visual cortex in the processing of the information. So what appears to be happening is you've got auditory information which is transmitted to the visual cortex, and it is the visual cortex that seems to serve as the primary processor um, or at least one of the primary processors of this information, the visual cortex is extremely active. This we know. So if you put an experienced echolocator who uses flash sonar in this way, and you have a good, strong look at their visual cortex, you'll see it highly active. And not only will you see it active, but you'll see it active in the same ways that you see a sighted person's visual cortex as being active. They're hardly distinguishable. So your brain is being trained to use this particular skill. Yes. How long does it take to learn this skill? Our workshops are typically for students between three and four days, depending upon the age of the student. If they're very young or quite elderly, maybe we'll do multiple workshops with them. And we're doing eight to 10 hours a day for these three or four days. And What we would say is that we give them absolutely the basic skills that they need to be able to go forward and teach themselves. So after they do the workshop with us, they can continue to practice this in their daily life, walk to school, to work, to the bus stop, whatever it is that they would typically do. 
maybe throw in a little bit extra, go to new places, try new things on a regular basis. And it can take as little as seven months, typically more like 18, maybe 24 months to really reach what we would call a mastery level. And mastery level is decided on how the student navigates in their life and what kind of life they want to live. So somebody, you know, a 76-year-old man who only is really going to be walking to and from the grocery store or something, he can reach mastery level by being able to move through that environment as quickly and as efficiently and as safely as a sighted counterpart. And so we use kind of a sighted normalization when we're looking at where should people be? What should they be able to do? And so we would say, if you're the kind of person and you want to have the kind of life that if you were sighted, you could do this list of things. We want you to be able to do that list of things regardless of your blindness. We really don't want that being the deciding factor. So it basically has to do with what we would say a quality of life or level of freedom that is comparable to one's peers. Basically, Um, our rule is if you're a 17-year-old and you want to learn to mountain bike, as a 17-year-old, you should have that right. And so we want to give you the skills to be able to learn to do what your friends are doing or what the kinds of people who you want to know are doing. Now, I've seen the videos, and some people might think this is a crazy question, but your example of mountain biking as a teenager, I assume this is something you've done, Jay. If I do uh, biking, it's going to be residential in my case, just because my life isn't conducive to the mountains, really. I live in Michigan. I might do some trails, but that's the extent of it. To answer your question, yes, I have ridden bikes. I will ride bikes. I don't typically make a habit of it, but that's just because I'm busy. But to extend your question a little bit, we have done mountain biking. Mountain biking is and has been one of our recreational activities, ball play of various sorts, um, hiking. So it's basically self-directed hiking. It's hiking without, you know, reliance on a sighted partner. It's camping without reliance on a sighted whatever. Juan, not too long ago, actually set a world record for Guinness in Italy blind bicycling through an obstacle course that he'd never seen before, okay, just by using flash sonar. So that's not to say that we expect our students to do that sort of thing or reach that sort of level or whatever. You know, as Jay said earlier, it's a matter of how an individual conceptualizes their own quality of life and their own freedom. It doesn't mean that you have to go out and set a record or scale a mountain or... (laughs) you know, play ball with the best of them. It's a matter of what serves you. It's a matter of what makes your daily life comfortable and effective. And that's really true for all of us. And what are the keys for someone in order to make this successful? I tell my students, their families, their instructors, that the three criterion that will make flash sonar work really well for you and that will make perceptual mobility work really well for you, attitude, environment, abilities. Those three things are parallel, but they're also sort of sequential. If you want the abilities, you have to have a supportive environment. And if you want a supportive environment, you need to have the attitude to back it up. And especially for the kids that I work with, that's so fundamental to them because they say, I really want to do these things, but I don't know where to start. And, you know, I'm not sure if my family would really be on board. And I'm just really not sure that I can do it. So what we want to do is we want to invert that and we want to say, you know what, you can do it. And then we want to have the, the environment say, wow, you're right, you, you can do it. And then those abilities do come into play, absolutely. Now, you mentioned that 
bats have been particularly well optimized for this over millions of years. And I'm thinking that perhaps not everybody can adapt to this and learn these skills successfully. What percentage of your students actually do learn these skills so that they can use it in their daily lives? 90. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's a very, very high percentage. But you have to keep in mind that it is a skill, just like anything, learning a language, learning to play a musical instrument, although I, I hasten to clarify that learning flash sonar is much easier than learning either a language or a musical instrument. But analogously, it's, it's a similar process. You have to work at it, I guess. You do have to work at it, and you have to apply it on a regular basis. You know, I used to always whistle um, as I was walking down the halls at work, and Nancy used to refer to that as my subconscious sonar. <laughs> right. And I think not just Pete, but an awful lot of blind people are already using, I mean, in, in Pete's whistling case, kind of a semi-active sonar, but also an awful lot of passive sonar. So I'm sighted in Pete's blind, and he'll walk into a room, and he knows how big that room is. And I finally learned, I mean, we've been married for 31 years, that if I pay attention I can tell how big the room is just by listening also. And I'm willing to bet that many, many blind people are kind of already so cognizant of what they're hearing and what it's telling them about the environment that they would be better predisposed to learning your techniques. There are two things there that you're really talking about. And so passive echolocation is great and it does have a lot of facility, but it misses out on two key aspects. One is distance. You're never going to get the distance that you're going to get with flash sonar. Because, well, this is the second piece. Passive echolocation is being spoken to by your environment. Active echolocation is speaking back to your environment and seeking out more information. So going back to this idea of learning a language, you can learn to be passively fluent with a language that's great, but active echolocation is going to give you the ability to continue that conversation. Something that's very important to keep in mind is that wherever you are, you can get better. There's not a ceiling to this skill. Just because we do certain things doesn't mean that that's the best thing that can be done. You can always surpass your teacher, and you can always learn more through that entire process. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about echolocation or flash sonar and their organization. So if people would like to hear more about your organization, where would you send them? You can Google Daniel Kish, and that will come up with contact information. And then most of our updates are being done through our Facebook page, which you can find just by searching World Access for the Blind. And is there a phone number? There is. It's uh, 866-396-7035. Or an email address? Basically, the email addresses of our coaches are on the contact page of the website. And just a note for our listeners, since we've recorded the original show, the new website is visioneers.org. And that will all be in the show notes, of course, at www.eyesonsuccess.net. That's it for show number 1936. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about starting a new business. Edward Cohen has 
recently started a business in which he makes calendars and other office supplies for people with low vision. And Patty Fletcher has her own small business through which she coaches people, especially those with visual impairments, who are themselves starting small businesses. And Edward is a client of Patty's, and we got them both on the show together to talk about the process from both ends. If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show, or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.eyesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes and follow us on Facebook at Eyes on Success or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.